Welcome to Poetry Says Everyone, a bumper episode today with UK-based writer, editor and activist Sophie Mayer. I was so thrilled to get the chance to talk to Sophie after a panel she did at the Freeverse Poetry Book Fair. The panel was simply called Poetry and Politics and afterwards we went and found the quietest possible location to record in. It's still very noisy and I do apologize for that. You can hear Sophie quite well, you can't hear me all that well, so hopefully you can battle through. There's so much in this discussion and I really hope you get something out of it. I hope there's a lot that's thought-provoking and interesting and challenging in there for you. Just to give you a little bit of context of what was going on before we sat down to record, the panel, Poetry and Politics, was Sophie and three other amazing poets just talking about the role of the political in their poetry. And there was so many interesting ideas that came up. Some of the things that I wrote down in my notebook here, poets can't affect change, but we can decide which side we're on. We tend to agree very strongly with ourselves. And uh, it's possible to write bad poetry about good causes. Something I've definitely done before. Yeah, so really hope you get something out of this chat. And without further ado, here is Sophie Mayer. Well, for context, we just walked out of a discussion at the Freeverse Poetry Book Fair called Poetry and Politics. So nice, you know, miniature theme. Um, and at the start, the uh, the introduction was, you know, we're at this point now where there are things that we can't avoid talking about, and the four things um, that were mentioned were Brexit, the siege in Aleppo, Black Lives Matter, and climate change. You know, all very easy, small issues. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is the thing that we can't avoid talking about? Like, if you sit down to write a new poem, is there is there one thing that's kind of like unavoidable? For, for me, that thing is climate change. Mm-hmm. It's like I can't write about can't write about a sunset or a tree or I mean, hopefully I'm not writing about those things anyway. But um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like it's always there, sure, present for me. Um, I guess since I, you know, really thought about starting writing poetry as an adult, you know, when you go from just writing in your diary or publishing in zines to thinking about something like magazine publishing or, or book collections one thing that I've really thought a lot about is the interconnection of everything so just a, another small topic yeah. <laughs> but if I'm thinking about climate change I'm also thinking about colonialism that yeah, right. if I'm thinking about the siege in Aleppo I'm thinking about the history of British colonialism and interference in the Middle East but also thinking about how what's happening in the Middle East now is not just about oil but about water and thinking about the differential gender politics of how that plays out and then I'm thinking about the different languages in verbal media and visual media because I write about film as well so I've been in a sense not writing poetry for a while trying to develop practices or the word that was used in the, in the panel was strategies I would say tactics because they're much less planned they're in the instant tactics for bringing these things together uh, in home thinking dimensionally so for the last few years I've been really 
uh, you know, again, a really small project using the Oxford English Dictionary mm. as a tool and looking at a particular word. So, for example, the word tender, which is a, ly- a word we associate with lyric poetry, mm. isn't it? Tender. Yeah. Yeah. We think we know what it means. But then even without using the dictionary, you start thinking, well, so people tender for a job you tender for a contract you tender your resignation you tend your resignation and then the word is actually related to tent and um, which is itself a word for skin hmm. so in okay. tender there is something about the body but then there's also tents um which have political meanings as well um and we, we talk about being in a political tent or out of a political tent oh, yeah, yeah. um yes. tents is the original sites of worship for the israelites um, the the space on a classical Greek stage that was the inside was called a skinny, which is also means a tent. So just by looking at one word and by at the work of incredible etymologists who of course also have their own politics and, and histories they're working within, um, so much opens up and it's become less about writing necessarily and more about reading, researching, refracting and then questioning as well so that you see, okay, a dictionary is not... Um, a politically innocent tool either. Um, If I'm a poet then my tool is language Mm. and I just felt that I needed to know more about how that tool was carrying and compacting all of these different levels of meaning Um, I interviewed Anne Carson which was pretty pretty intense. (laughs) Uh, It was her first uh, the first, when her first um, poetry book was published in the UK which here was called Glass and God because oh, she said the, shit, the British had enough irony and didn't need so in the US it was called Glass Irony and God and she said yeah I think one. the British have enough irony and they didn't need that but also the, the irony section was not included so the British book actually has slightly different um, okay. poems in it but she said that one reason that she continues to translate is that it reminds her to look up every word in the dictionary even if she thinks she knows what it means and obviously in Knox that is something she used as a structuring principle by writing traditional and non-standard etymologies for even words like in and the Hmm. so so she's looking up every single she's looking up every single word and I think so if there's something I can't avoid when I sit down to write a poem, it's language. <laughs> um, but we, and the interconnectedness. We know how it. language is, is incredibly political. Um, beliefs about language, um, what the right language is, what the wrong language is. Barbarian literally means the people who speak bar, 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 bar. So othering principles in, in Euro-Western languages begin with, oh, we don't understand those people. All the dis- debates about that refugees in Britain should, and, and migrants to Britain should have to learn English, but then the cutting of funding for English language classes for non-British move. citizens, yeah, which yeah. is exactly a classic. Our government looks up to the Australian government in all things to do <laughs> uh, with, with refugees and migration, which is a, a truly terrifying proposition so when you start thinking about it when you start thinking about language as entirely political then all of these immediate issues whether it's the long crisis of climate change or gender violence or very immediate in the news um, items not the siege of Aleppo and then you start realizing the siege of Aleppo isn't just a crisis it goes back through hundreds of years of colonialism and back through the crusades and beyond 
and that frees you up in a certain way because everything becomes as, as important and every form you can intervene in to write about these issues. So a love lyric that is identified by internal clues as being set in Aleppo under the bombing dispenses with that idea that the lyric is just intimate, that it's just prurient. This is referring to um, some observations that Bill Herbert made about a lot of standard lyric writing in English at the moment, that actually that form suddenly opens up and becomes a, sp- a space um, for the intensely political. Mm. Is that sort of what you meant? At, at one point in the panel you said um, the lyric has become a bit of a pressured zone. Yes. That, that's sort of what you were talking about there. Um, yeah, so for me, the lyric, I, I agree with um, what Shaman Hardy, who's one of the other panellists, was saying, that forms that are associated with the feminine or with the feminised or with women's practice are often excluded from the political mm. or belittled or dismissed with the idea that they can't contain anything big or important Um, and that's speaking about raising a child or domestic labour or gender violence is not somehow political so yeah when you start bringing that awareness to the lyric that actually the lyric is full of the compacted political but we might not be sensitive to it so some of the references to nature in romantic poets are actually about enclosures and climate change that they were observing and about the politics of the separation between culture and nature but to us we just read them through this sort of reinterpreted quote-unquote romantic lens as being pure or innocent or naive or apolitical but the poets themselves for them, the natural world was a political site of political struggle against enclosure, against industrialization, and against climate change and against class politics. Even at that time, yeah. But we we tend to look back in with this real rose-colored view. Reminds me of this Caroline Duffy poem. I like Caroline Duffy a lot, but I had a problem with this poem All right. because she wrote this piece. It's on her blog. I don't know if it's if it's in a book yet, but it was basically like when the volcano in Iceland erupted, all the planes were grounded. I have yeah, like yeah, you cool. Yeah. I learned how to say that, so I like to say it as often Very as possible. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so she she writes this poem about the fact that all the planes are grounded, and now I'm able to see the sky. Plane is passing now. Uh, see the sky and, and hear Wordsworth's sky. Yeah. Something about that just bugs me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder about that a lot, being here in the UK and thinking about the the hugeness of the literary tradition that you are writing within and, yeah, how you grapple with that, how you sort of, um, how you put hands to keyboard in, with that in the background. Well, I mean, in English, we only really have just over a thousand years of continuous literary tradition, so... <laughs> In Australia, the continuous literary tradition in Aboriginal languages is thousands of years. So um, I was very privileged to go and do graduate study in Canada, in Toronto, and to have, uh, to be immersed in an education about just what a colonial place I came from and unthinkingly, you know, I was a feminist, I was like very leftist, I was an anti-racist, but I never really had the distance to think about just the the implications of how colonial British poetry practices are and things like 
um, you know, Coleridge had this fantasy that he would leave England and he would set up like a commune on the banks of the Susquehanna River. And a lot of the Romantics really idealized white settlement in the Americas. And they were like, they are the true people of freedom. And even Blake switches from critiquing white settlers for, you know, invading the land and um, military and other kinds of genocide against Native Americans being like no the American Revolution is a true symbol of liberty and freedom and that so much of romantic poetry and so much of British literature was enabled by the wealth that came from colonialism let alone uh, what we regard now like we're sitting you know 10 minutes walk from the British Museum which was built with sugar plantation money and chocolate plantation money and so much of what is in it is stolen that definitely struck me when i went there yeah and we're there there was a big show about uh, australia and continuous art practice in australia last year and there was a delegation um i can't remember them more but i'm afraid but of aboriginal australians that came both to see the show and everyone you know the expectation in museum culture is always this level of politesse and diplomacy that they would just say yes you've done a wonderful job it was curated by an aboriginal curator but they said we want our ancestral objects or spirit objects back these are these are these are living things you've taken them and made them dead but they're actually part of a living continuous culture and obviously that applies as much to the British relationship with Greece over the Elgin marbles as it does to relationship with indigenous people globally but when you start thinking about that the British tradition stands on like really shaky ground and it comes with Christianity it comes with the coming of Christianity to Britain and then with the French conquest so it is actually in some ways a colonial doubly colonial language itself Um, I'm not going to use the word some people do talk about indigenous Britons and indigenous British culture I think that's often a way of not talking about the fact that Britain is um, multicultural and it is a colony itself but um, yeah I don't I guess I've gone away from finding it daunting yeah 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 yeah, wow, I've never thought about any of that in that way before. That's incredible. Plus, it's just like a bunch of dudes. And what do they know? Like, what do they know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's true, though. They, they were the people who were putting pen to paper at the time who happened to have a particular kind of power yeah. at a particular moment. And there are, I mean, there were women poets, um, like... Mary Robinson, who was a celebrity at the time, she was an actor as well, and she was one of the first people that we have on in the poetic record who writes about being a mother. Um, she also writes about going to prison for her husband's debts, and she writes about the expectation she will use her erotic capital uh, as social capital, and she writes about the idea that men are stronger than women, and she writes about class politics, but of course she's not part of the tradition even though she is really the first person to reinvent the sonnet she writes a bunch of a group of sonnets from Sappho like just before she died to her supposed male lover and Wordsworth reads them and writes her and says these are great and then he starts reinventing the sonnet and everyone goes oh Wordsworth (laughs) so mansplaining has been happening for a really long time (laughs) oh Oh, that's fantastic I'm gonna have to go and, and read some of those now Something that came up on the panel was um, this question of the poetry bubble. Sure. Which I think is something we, we all worry about far too much. Um, Hello, you are here. I called Hey. 
Yes, we're just recording. It's alright. It's, right. it's okay. I'll cut all this out. Don't worry. Alright. They're all good. Um, other pirates. Other pirates. Oh, they're always interrupting. Inter- get, bursting your poetry bubble is. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's funny how poets often spend a lot of time worrying about whether they're only talking to each other. Um, part of me wonders whether that's just a bit of a distraction from doing the actual talking. But, but something that you said, which I thought was a great point, was that a way to challenge that, that bubble is through collaboration. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the collaboration that you've done and what the process has been for you in, in sort of setting that up and, and the writing that you've been doing. Sure. Um, I mean, I guess the, the overall point is that the poetry bubble wouldn't feel like a poetry bubble if its walls were more expansive. Um, So people who are constantly talking to each other about whether they're only talking to people in the poetry bubble could be using that energy and that conversation to invite other people in or to realise that their bubble isn't the only one. Um, Just articulated it for me, thank you. Yeah, (laughs) that they're they're practising their own form of exclusion. Um, I find it, having um, sort of lived in North America, one thing that I find quite strange about the sort of poetry and even really the literary world in London is how cut off it is from other art practices, visual art, formative arts, um, of all kinds. That when you think about the beat movement, actually there were conversations going to filmmaking, there were conversations obviously with with jazz, um, but also with avant-garde dance and performance. conversations about Buddhism, conversations with anti-military, anti-Vietnam activists and, and you know, radical political activists. So this that idea is quite strange to me. I'm, I'm a film critic. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to people who make films um, on all different scales from, you know, uh, sort of popular mainstream cinema down to experimental art cinema and... Um, seeing how they interact with each other and I yeah I guess I've learned something from that about setting projects in motion um the Pussy Riot project which became an anthology called Caskism Poems for Pussy Riots um which I co-edited with Sarah Crew and Marcy Bernhope. On the one hand, it's very easy for me to say, oh, it just began as a casual conversation on Facebook. But the reason that there were people I was talking to on Facebook and who were talking to me came out of already having spent um, six years back in the poetry community in the UK, having taught uh, creative writing at Anglo Ruskin and at Middlesex. And while I was at Middlesex, I set up uh, a blog called I Don't Call Myself a Poet yep. Yep. Um, based on uh, a project called The Great Canadian Poem started by Angela Rawlings uh, in Canada. She realised there was not a set of interviews with contemporary Canadian poets. When I was looking for a textbook I realised the same about British poetry, that there wasn't one anthology. There's a really good one by Blood Axe called Strong Words which has a lot of writing about writing poetry but I wanted a really contemporary one um, and I thought it would be great for students to acquire 
one transferable skill. I was busy teaching them how to write experimental like Dada poetry, so they might at least get something they could sell to an employer, <laughs> which was how to do an interview. Everything from how to write a formal email that does not alienate the person that you're interviewing to being on time to crafting the interview that, that went online. And it was an absolutely amazing project because it made me realize that I had let myself be in a bubble of particular kind of poets, none of whom my students had heard of. They wanted to interview Jackie Kay and Michael Rosen and Caroline Duffy and Benjamin Zephaniah. And I thought, right, I have got to reach out. And I also wanted to make sure that it was at least uh, 50% women. And I was aiming for like 30 to 40% non-white writers as well and to have disabled writers and um, writers of every generation, small pamphlet writers, large, you know, popular press writers, because otherwise it wouldn't be reflective. So when I started looking with my students' eyes, I realized that there were many scenes, they were interconnected to each other, and they all had something to offer. Mm. And that the most interesting people in the interviews were the people who were very mobile and moved between them and thought very carefully about how they didn't just want to get stuck in this one little defensive huddle yeah 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 doing this one thing yeah Mm. um and with with catechism one of the things we realized is that there were lots of people that i'd met or talked to who i thought of as feminist poets and i thought of myself as a feminist poet but we were all really scared none of us were as brave as pussy riot none of us were speaking as politically about the erotic politically about the body politically about um, affect uh, politically about gendered violence as we could be and lots of people who sent us poems said oh this is a poem I wrote but I was afraid to publish or I wrote this 10 years ago and it's never appeared anywhere mm. and then that carried on with Binders Full of Women which was just a response to Mitt Romney we heard him say we were determined to get a zine out in time for the election uh, and me and Sarah did handmade which was fantastic and then again with Poets Against Atos lots of people saying I've never talked about having a disability having a disabled partner or a child with a disability and then I worked um, with a South African poet uh, on a sort of blog a publication called Against Rape and again this sense of coming out or presenting yourself and realising that there was still a distinction between the poets who were having these experiences and being afraid to write them and our assumption about who the audience or who the mainstream of the poetry community is and that until we speak that assumption about the mainstream won't change so with poets like Kai Miller and Sarah Howe and Truman Hardy our sense of what the mainstream of British poetry is, is finally changing visibly within the mainstream of things like prizes and reviews, but it's still really easy to get afraid because of your assumptions that you're alone. Yeah. And so collaborative work is very simply saying you're not alone on this one. And remembering that historically you're not alone, um, contemporaneously you're not alone, nationally you're not alone. Um, so the collaborative, to me, collaboration is conversation. Um, and working out how to keep it conversational, to keep it so that we're being positive with each other, um, 
that we're expressing ourselves openly about everything like the structures of the work as well as the more formal or theoretical conversations about what we're publishing like saying what do you think our attitude to copy editing should be should we do it ourselves should we send it back to the poet should we split it up between us just putting everything on the on the table um, because other otherwise collaborations become power struggles or, or go sour so using it as a constant reminder to always be devolving any kind of any power yeah yeah and a reminder i guess that your embedded assumptions about what the right way to do things is is not necessarily correct absolutely there's so many things that have come out of what you've just said but i think i think where i'll go next is um this idea that people assume that they're alone um, and that how speaking out about things can can contribute to sort of solving that sense. So I watched the film She's Beautiful When She's Angry last night, just in preparation to meet you, and something that um, <laughs> one of the... <laughs> I can't claim any credit for that film. Well, I just want to put that that's, on that's the record. That's totally fine. That's totally fine. No, I just thought, you know, it would be good to watch it. And um, something that one of the activists on there said was, by speaking out, we create this recognition that this is not just a personal problem, this is a social problem. And, and one of the, the themes in the panel today was how can poetry create a space amongst so much political discourse? Do you think it can? Do you think it does do that? I mean, I'm, I'm really bored by this question of like, you know, can poetry ever do anything? I mean, come on, just stop worrying about that. But I just wonder, like, how does it, how does a book like Catechism mm-hmm you sort of introduced it and you were sort of joking saying it was a failure because mm-hmm. it didn't get Pussy Riot out of prison but it, it did do something actually I think Pussy Riots uh, the three members who were in prison said it best in response to the sort of really enormous and incredibly exciting outpouring of support for them they said don't support us, be Pussy Riot Our performance or politics will have worked if everyone become who supports us becomes pissy riot and i think that's where poetry and that's where feminist activism um can make such a difference because they're a reminder that the individual evolution uh, as grace lee boggs the great uh, marxist and hegelian thinker says she says it's not a revolution it's an evolution it happens in every moment um it's a combination of all different kind of struggles but it has to begin in each person it doesn't end with each person that's really important one of the ways the, po- the personal is political has been misunderstood is the idea that it's just enough to write a poem about your period or um your abortion and th- those acts are courageous but it doesn't end with that mm. when you realize the personal is political exactly as the i remember that activist in she's before and she's angry she's talking about consciousness raising sessions yeah. and she doesn't say what was important was that each woman told their story but we realized this was a systemic sex class problem and that it could be spoken about in a systemic way so this is another way that the lyric becomes a pressurized zone is that yes i'm writing this poem about something that happened to me but if i'm doing it as a feminist as an intersectional feminist I'm thinking about the reasons that it happened to me is not just that I'm an individual, that I'm part of a gender, that I'm part of an ethnicity, that I'm part of a class, that I'm part of a sexuality, and that the pressures that produced this sexual assault or um, 
this encounter are social and systemic. Um, and some people will say the lyric can't handle that, um, or that you know it has to be exploded or blown apart in lots of experimental ways, which I absolutely agree with. Um, that it has to be written about satirically, or it has to be documentary poetry, or um, it can't be handled in poetry. It has to be a novel, or it has to be nonfiction. Um, I, I don't agree with that. I think you find the form for the story, the complexities of the story you want to tell, and I think there are really very compelling examples of the collective voice in poetry but they're not really happening in the mainstream so you asked me to bring a poem or a book to talk about I'm not going to read from it because it's really a continuous um, sequence collection so it's called Blood Run and it's by Alison Adele Hedgecoke who is uh, of Cherokee, Huron, Creek, French, Canadian, Lorraine, Portuguese, English, Scot and Irish ascendants. Um, she grew up in North Carolina, the Great Plains and in Canada and Blood Run is about her indigenous ancestry and it's it's exactly what I was saying earlier, it's an in-depth long history of the land and of humans as only one species and one kind of temporality that interact with that long history so it decenters away from the coming of colonial settlers and recenters on land history and the history of the of the cosmos uh, and of the people to whom it was first given um, so I'm really interested in looking for examples of that kind of speaking with um, rather than speaking for or speaking about or even speaking to um, yeah and I think so I would say that Claudia Rankine's citizen and its use of the second person and its use of mixed media for me is another really compelling example of that although often the way the bit gets talked about in the mainstream like there's an interview with her in the Observer that was like so you're black how did that inf influence you writing this book and when she would talk about form or she'd talk about her process, the interview would say, no, no, but, but you're black, so that That's must be really hard for you. <laughs> um, so that we tend to have this separation between, you know, unmarked, i.e. dominant culture poets who are allowed to experiment with form or experiment with the history of form or produce new ways of doing things, and then marked poets who are marked by given identity categories whose work is only read in relation to that and that can lead many people and poets say I don't want to be thought of as a woman poet I'm not I'm a poet I think of myself as a feminist poet um, because for me feminism was how I discovered some of my formal practices it, it's a lineage that I'm extremely proud of um, whether you track it back only to Adrienne Rich or to Mary Robinson or to Sappho or to many unnamed poets yeah, yeah. whose name who had names but whose names I do not know um, the women behind the poems that were sort of reused or reinterpreted by male writers to write things like the Song of Songs so I understand, you know, that position of not wanting to be locked into an identity because it's misused. Um, so I think that's something we need to talk about as well. Is I don't know, sort of really thinking about that as a political stance of yes, this is my lineage. Never thought about it that way, but that's just such a fantastic way to, to put it—the marked and the unmarked. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there are many poets who were assumed unmarked. So I was just, we were just, I was just on a panel with W. N. Herbert, who, in some contexts, would be read as dominant culture because he's a white man. But as a Scots poet, he is marking himself. He's standing on the side of the marked, of the colonized, of those reviving lost languages and thinking politically about them. And so. I don't want to claim to be dividing the world into that as no, well. Right, every, right. Every, yeah. Everyone is marked and there are many histories of specificity within what is seen as blanket white masculinity. And I think those those coming forward is really important as well. Mm. And just for Australian listeners, I should say that I think John Kinsella is obviously a fantastic example of that, someone who's really come come forward both as marking himself as, as white and male and thinking about that as a settler and as a as a as an ecological anti-pastoral poet uh, the specificities of that as someone who lives a predominantly rural life you know and and as a political i think he did calls himself an anarchist yeah i think he does yeah, yeah. yeah. so to stand with the marked to declare yourself marked is a really powerful act yeah just recognizing it in the first place I suppose. yeah yeah I'd never thought about it that way brain explosions <laughs> that's not the sound of a brain explosion yeah. that's like that's the, the barbershop we're saying outside that is a hairdryer so this is from the final poem in blood run which is called when the animals leave this place and it's just from the end of the poem um, by Alison Adele Hedgecoke. Waters above, below the choir calling it forth, bright plume jays and dull brown-headed cowbirds fly as if hung in one place like pinwheels. They dance toward the rain crest, the approaching storm, beckoning, inviting, summoning. A single sparrow sings the stroke of rain past the strength of sunlight. The frog chorus sings refrain, melody drumming thunder, evoked by beasts and water creatures wanting their home, wanting to return to clearings and streams where ash or white birch woods rise, tower over. Quaking aspens stand against storm-shown veils, sheeting rain crossing pasture, pasture, meadow, hills, mountain. Sounds erupt. Gathering clouds converge, push-pull, pull, forcing lightning back and forth, shaping windy, sculptured swans, mallard ducks, and giants from stratocumulus media, as if they are a living cloud chamber, as if they are, as if they exist only in the heavens. Air swells with dampness. It has begun. And what I love about that is this idea of a post-human or non-human or non-human-centered poetry. You know, the Romantics went some of the way towards hearing the lark, but they still did it from man being at the center of things and white European man in particular. And in older non-Euro-Western practices, um, whether those are Vedic or in different indigenous cultures, the human is just one among the animals and we're now the most destructive animal yep. so to imagine not when the animals leave but when this animal leaves or at least leaves off its quest for dominance which i don't believe is hardwired or natural or evolutionary or any of this rubbish mm. um 
what poetry is there then? And a Western, most Western poets would say, well, none. I think that, and so for me, that's why eco-poetics and climate change are one of the centers, one of the things that have to center a political poetry because we can't just think about the human as the measure, measure of a politics or the measure of a language. Yeah. Yeah, I was interviewing uh, a poet from Australia called P.S. Cotier the other day and she talks about the problem of the Misty Cow poem, which basically <laughs> does exactly that. It puts the poet at the centre, the landscape surrounds them, looks beautiful, and basically at the end you think, oh, isn't that pretty? Or yeah, so that's, you know, the part, that's the pastoral, isn't it? It's yeah, the, yeah. the land as used by humans, but then also this pretense that there's any such thing as nature when every inch of the planet has been shaped by human behaviour, if not directly, then indirectly through pollution and through uh, human-made climate change. Mm-hmm. So that's another, it's another kind of privileged innocence, isn't it? Like thinking like any word choice isn't political. Yeah, so I, w- I would love to read some of her her work and how she counters that. In I have to say, in white male Canadian poetry, there's often also a dead animal, that or dying animal that stands in for the lost First Nations, lost quote unquote First Nations culture, of which the white man then nominates himself the inheritor because of his ability to look, you know, with a tear in his eye at the dead deer, and imagine how the fiddlehead is going to make his wife want to have sex with him again. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cringing because I can think of so many examples. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Um, I have so many questions for you. I think I'm going to have to to chase you around and do a whole series. But basically, um, I didn't want to to let you go without asking about a couple of TV series that I have been a bit obsessed with, and I know that you do some wonderful writing around. Um, feminist readings of film um, and so I'm, wonder- I'm going to put three out there for you in here, I haven't seen any I'll just cut this whole bit out, but basically have you seen any Transparent, have you seen any Kimmy Schmidt and have you seen any Crazy Ex-Girlfriend I have, I am obsessed with all three of them while being distinctly aware of their white their whiteness yeah, they're pretty white, they're they? pretty white <laughs> and the ways in which they differently articulate that and their white creators differently articulate that um, I think it's really um, interesting that two of them also foreground Jewishness transparent yeah. and uh, crazy ex-girlfriend for a long time Jews have passed as unmarked Ashkenazi Jews have passed as unmarked uh, in America um, there's an absolutely brilliant book by uh, an American poet called Melanie K. Kantrowitz who was one of the first lesbian poets that I ever read because she was just like in my I grew up in a very Jewish area I went to an orthodox Jewish school um, I was raised conservative Jewish but some amazing librarian in my Jewish suburb had put in the section of Jewish poetry poets like Adrienne Rich Melanie K. Kantrowitz and Irene Klepfis who were also very important lesbian feminist mm. poets and so when I was like 12 or 13 I was encountering their ideas and like mind blown and this summer I've really gone back to reading a lot of Adrienne Rich because I've been writing about Greenham Common and thinking about the late 70s and early 80s and women in the anti-nuclear and anti-war movements and how that connection like eco-feminism and anti-war feminism goes back 
you know, in, into that sort of very, I don't want to use the word radical anymore because with feminism that's a, that's a problem, but that mm. like even more than progressive yeah, left yeah. left feminism mm. and anti-racism as well. Like Adrienne Rich was one of the leading voice, white voices about the exclusion of women of colour from American feminism. Um, so to me it's really exciting that trans shows like Transparent and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend are marking the specificity of Jewishness both culturally and through religious practices and like not in a ha-ha way or in a constantly like anthropologically explaining it way Um, and they look at questions of assimilation and they look at the relationship between um, the inheritance of East European Jews who were refugees coming to America in both shows in Transparent and in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend the families came as refugees in the early 20th century and transgenerational trauma um, and it's treated very differently in in each show but this idea that we we need to know our history we need to know our past we need as Jews to think about ourselves as refugees and um, I know there have been a lot of progressive Jewish groups standing with Black Lives Matter um, here and in the US, for example, and here Jewish groups organizing around bringing Syri- Syrian refugees, particularly child refugees, unaccompanied minors to the UK. So awakening that historical m- memory. And those are the moments when I, that's what feels Jewish to me, right. is that kind of being marked, saying, yes I have experienced being marked and that makes me anti-Zionist I stand with Palestinians which I do so um, in Transparent there's like that one episode where Maura sings at the Palestinian benefits and there's just a banner it's this, the one where she sings karaoke oh, but yeah. it was really overshadowed by being the first episode that had a trans man in it oh, um, okay. Ian Harvey playing Dale yeah. but it is actually a benefit for Palestinian groups but it's just quietly in the background Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I think it's really exciting to have this moment where there is a critical mass of shows um, with female showrunners with women of color showrunners like Shonda Rhimes with um, shows like Master of None um, Atlanta Queen of Sugar Clever Man in Australia that are allowing us to have a complex conversation where we say well actually one thing I've only seen two episodes of Clever Man so I can't say as a whole but you know one thing that I think is really interesting Clever Man is totally decentering white characters even though it has them they're all awful of course apart from the saintly doctor um, but you know so far the predominantly the action is happening around its male characters although it has very interesting female leads and I'm interested to see how that plays out but when you have a critical mass of shows like you can compare Transparent and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Kimmy Schmidt and say well I think this one is addressing those questions of white privilege and white centering better than this show so but until you have that that critical mass one show has to carry the can for everything exactly and and black filmmakers have talked about this female filmmakers have talked about this indigenous poets have talked about it you know claudia rankin's talked about it being the only black poet or marlon james has has talked about it so moment like you can't have either solidarity or really forms of critical conversation Mm -hmm. until there is 
a large community and there's a corpus of text. So I think that's why dominant culture often does tokenize because it's really easy to produce one film, to produce it mediocrely, to distribute it badly, mm. to then both lionize and sort of shame the director for having succeeded. And therefore, you know, they can't talk about, you know, being a person of color anymore because they're successful. And that happens in the hip hop community all the time. And then people are, are isolated and supposedly isolated from their community. Uh, and critical masses prevent it. Mm. Um, so. I'd never thought, I'd never been able to articulate this before, but you're explaining to me why it's, it's so exciting as a viewer to, to have not just any of those three individual shows, but all of them there together. Because when I was growing up, back in the bad old days of the <laughs> 90s queer as folk was it or yeah. the L word was yeah. it and it's like here are your lesbians have fun yeah. it's like but wait 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 no I don't, yeah. I don't I don't want these lesbians I want other lesbians <laughs> or you know like yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah critical mass it's, it's a perfect way to put it it does feel like a, a truly exciting moment what I think is even more interesting is that um Talk, talking to someone who only has the barest of understanding of, of the issues that affect trans people, but basically looking at a show like Transparent and then also knowing that over there on E, I Am Caitlin is playing. Yeah. And kind of what's happening over there has has a lot of, it's got problems, but it's also, it's got successes. And I think that's that's interesting too. So again, there's it's happening so quickly. And yeah. Just, I'm just so excited for for young queer people growing up now um, in so many ways. I mean, they've got their, they've got challenges that will be different, but yeah. I, yeah, I mean, as someone, you know, who is a writer and who, who writes about film from a production perspective, I also think that the, the critical conversation in the community online that, you know, um, question transparent being written by a cisgendered woman and obviously Jill Soloway has developed a sort of writer's room mentorship program that has brought in trans writers and directors like Silas Howards mm. um, but that it's about behind the camera as well so knowing that Sydney Freeland um, who's a Navajo trans woman Danae Nadlehi um, was behind the camera for her story, which was um, an online show that got a lot of coverage because Eve Ensler wrote about it and because it's seen as part of the quote-unquote tipping point. Mm. That to be able to think about people producing their own stories and that that conversation isn't going to go away, we aren't just quietly going to sit by and go, yeah, great, let's have Eddie Redmayne playing everyone. He can play Stephen Hawking. <laughs> he can play Lily Elba, you know, and which is not to in any way say anything about his prowess as you know an extremely wealthy and privileged white man who you know went to a number of schools where he had the benefit of formidable drama teachers and incredible equipment and being surrounded by other people who had the leisure time to engage in doing that kind of practice yeah. um, <laughs> and you know someone who in his liberal way like has has spoken out for the trans community but I think we're not just going to accept the spoken for anymore. Yeah. You know, the kind of Carolyn Fauché practices when we have Shaman Hardy writing with her community, in her community, being trusted with their stories because she shares aspects of them and it will always think about the ethics of that. And um, I don't even want to say his name, but KG, 
I think, proved a limit point um, that really enabled or enabled how people were articulating issues around race and appropriation and the racism, systemic racism of how invitations to things work and who is given the stage and who is listened to and how. They were all being articulated, but enabled them to come into a larger and more amplified space. Like no credit to him at all, but it was just a limit case moment um, because of the way in which he was trying to use Michael Brown's murder um, and because of the organizing that was already happening that became Black Lives Matter. And the fact that that movement is led by three queer women of color and they will not be written out of history. They will not, we will not allow it the way that the trans women of color who led Stonewall, people have tried to erase them. So I think it's on us, you know, now that we've seen this happening to, to stand in solidarity and, and be allies in that way. And I think people like Wasan Shire, Ocean Vuong, Ron Villanueva, who was on the panel today, Claudia Rankine, like they are news. Yeah in America now and that is exciting it is like it is. that their poetry their ways of speaking the importance of poetry in communities where literacy is a western imposition or you know forms of book literacy are western imposition that is exciting yeah I like that so much like standing in solidarity but also what you're saying before um and I, you know it's ironic because we're sitting here with a microphone talking a million miles an hour but just just to be quiet just now we can just listen because there's plenty of other people talking we can just be quiet <laughs> i like that a lot i lo- i loved learning at um occupy or you know decolonize as it was also yeah. called oh, or it, there was some really interesting discussions in like native communities in america around like let's not call it occupy <laughs> So here, uh, the um, like Sisters Uncut have changed their term from occupy to reclaim. Um, so the idea that when we're, we're not taking something, we're taking something back. Right, right. Um, but the the megaphone, the practice of the megaphone or occupy meetings, where someone at the front would speak, and then people would cut their hands and pass it mm. back. Mm. So it took time, yeah. and I feel like as someone who has white skin privilege and educational privilege, can I be an amplifier? And that's what I do as a film critic. I, I try to privilege writing about films that other people aren't necessarily writing about. Like if I can find a space, or even if I can't, if I can just do it on Tumblr. Yeah, yeah I the, wrote a book called Political Animals, which has 500, talks about 500 feminist films uh, made since 2000 from 60 countries. And some of them, you know, they're all films in that book I was not able to see but if I could take Betty Ellison of African Women in Cinema on trust that the film by Rahel Zagay was important I would I could and I would quote her so I think as poets like we're sensitive to language we should also be sensitive to things like citation do you put your citation of who you're quoting in a footnote or do you put your name in their their name in your poem like where are you bearing witness to the community that you're part of where are you bearing witness to the people who came before you where are you bearing witness to the people whose voices you're including and like just the 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 mise-en-page of that in published poetry like those are all political decisions Mm. 
and what do you leave unmarked like oh if I'm doing a twist on a on a Keats line do I leave that unmarked because I assume all my readers will know who Keats is but if I'm doing a twist on an Audre Lorde phrase do I mark that so again it comes back to like this question of who your community is and what do you mark what do you footnote what do you reference who do you quote what carries across how do you get it across Mm. and these are all political decisions I think so yeah I think you're down. Yeah, I have to go and recaffeinate, <laughs> which oh, is also political, obviously. So good to talk to you. Thank you so much.